0: one button on the thing I don't know why I can't work <laughs> for those of us who are, are remaining here the young at heart uh, let's turn our Bibles please this morning to 2nd Timothy chapter 1 which I promise we'll be finished with 2nd Timothy 1 today 2nd Timothy chapter 1 the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul about what it is to be about the ministry of the gospel under trial when it hurts writing to Timothy who is Wounded from painful experiences in ministry, who now has to step up. Second Timothy chapter one. You'll all you'll observe it as the first epistle after First Timothy. And before we proceed, I have to show you Aiden Aubin. Well, I do have to. Aiden, there's Aiden. Aiden Aubin, born 329 this morning. Grace is doing fine. Baby's doing fine. Praise God for his special gifts. And uh, he has a good week to have his birthday. So, Aiden Aubin. All right. We're in trouble because we're in a world opposed to the message of life. And that's been the case since the very beginning of the human experience when God was dealing with man and woman in the garden, told man to go cultivate and keep guard what he had given him in the garden of Eden. And then there was a big failure because the serpent said, you don't need to believe what God said. You need to believe what I say. We've been fighting that battle ever since that first encounter with God's enemy. And today we're reading about how Timothy was dealing with the trials and struggles of this life. To grab a little bit of context in verse... um, My verse numbers are off. Verse 13, sorry, retain the command of the apostle to Timothy who has been hurt and suffers tears and is needing to rekindle his gift. He's had a setback in ministry, retain the pattern of sound words, which you heard from me. We're calling this biblical conservatism. Conservatism isn't my culture is right because it's me. That's racism. Right? That's, that's where I'm right because it's me, and my internal sinful arrogance says me, you know, I looked in the mirror and I found out how to be. Right? And and it's all right because it's our culture. Now this is transcultural, this is transnational, this is this is life that's available to the entire human race. For as an Adam' all die, that's the first. Man, then we all came from that first man. So in Christ, the second Adam, all will be made alive. This is a universal thing. And so when we say conservatism, we don't mean conserving our culture. Now, in my culture, there are certain aspects of it that have been informed by the Bible, and I would try to conserve those things, right? And for some of you to come into this building is like to step into a time capsule. But it's a weird one because you come in and we're singing old songs and uncomfortable old chairs with a guy still wearing a doublet or whatever, you know, the suit still. We're still doing that. I don't have the spiky, you know, hair with the skinny jeans. I'm not doing all that stuff. Still have the hide me behind the pulpit kind of pulpit where I promise I'm fully clothed, but you wouldn't know if i you know. Um, we look like we're really old, but then there's electronics and we're putting this up on the screen. And um, I mean, the children, pardon the expression, some of you are grown, but... The young people keep us in music here. And so my point is that um, we're not just hanging on to things because it's how it's always been. But we are needing to retain the pattern of sound words, which Paul tells Timothy he heard from him. In the faithfulness and love which were in Christ. This is what the, the essence of Christianity is. The faithfulness and love which were in Christ And then he tells him to guard. He tells him to retain and to guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He told Timothy to hang on to something that he cannot hang on to. You've got a million pound weight and you need to hold it. And if you drop it, that's going to be a catastrophic fail. But how can you hold this weight? Retain the pattern, guard the good deposit. How can you do this impossible task? Well, through the Holy Spirit. God, the, the, the Spirit himself inside you empowers you to do what God expects. Theology is a very interesting thing. A great theological debate, brouhaha fight uh, arose in the fourth century over an interesting statement that became kind of a, of a slogan. Let me paraphrase what Augustin, Augustin, Augustine, depending on where you're from, what he said. He said, um, command what thou wilt and provide what thou commandest," or something like that. Provide what, uh, command whatever you want, O oh God, you're God and I'm not. And then provide whatever you command. And there was an, a confused theologian that thought he had it all settled named um, Pelagius who took great umbrage at that statement and, and raised a ruckus about, That's not the way to think about God. We're in a a partnership with him where we decide our part and God decides his part. And uh, and we're going to insist on our sovereignty over our lives and God's sovereignty over his thing. And so there ended up being this this view of separation between the works of God. And some have said, if you ever speak about partnership with God, as the scriptures teach, then you're Pelagian. But my point is that Augustine was right on. God, make your command, but then you're going to have to make me able to do it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.13. That doesn't mean work for it. It means work out. Those of you who are are Christ, work it out, live it out. But then he says, because God is the one working in you, both to want and to do what pleases him. Philippians 2.12.13. That's what he's saying here. You've got a high calling. Guard the deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But you have infinite capacity, infinite capability in God's power to do whatever pleases him. Now, that infinite capacity is an interesting thing people want to talk about. They want to say, well, I can do anything I want. After all, I've got my one verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. I can do anything, but that's not what that means. I can do anything he wants me to do. And that's what we have this for. He tells us what he wants so that then we know. And anything he wants me to do, I can do. You haven't yet resisted. Sin to the point of shedding blood, says Hebrews 12. That's what we're talking about. You don't have to obey your sinful nature and its lust. You don't have to go after the world and its calling to your sinful nature. You don't have to live that way. And when you do, you need to confess your sins, according to 1 John 1, nine. But the point is, you've got God the Spirit working in you. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not even be able to bring forth the lust of the flesh. You can't do what displeases God. So everything that God wants us to do is in the power of God, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Think about this with me just a minute, beloved. I never just want to tell you what to think. Those of you who came for that, I have some things that I think you should know and I want you to to get them, but I also want you to think how to think, how should we think about this? Is there anything else God has told us to do that is beyond our ability but he says, absolutely, you're responsible. So that you're going to need special help from God to do it. Has there anything else like that in the Christian life? Anything come to mind? Listen to it. It's a responsibility that goes far beyond your abilities. Some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand because he knows I know. <laughs> I don't want to be that person that always gives the answer. Think about this. Listen to the new commandment. John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. This is Jesus speaking, that you love one another just as I've loved you. Who is so narcissistic? Who is so self-absorbed to think that they are as good a lover as God the Son? The opposite of raising hands. I don't want to he said that's narcissistic. I'm as good a lover as Jesus, but he says, love one another just as I've loved you. Do you see what I mean by an infinite responsibility? You've got to love with the love of God expressed through you. That's the Christian life. How are you and I going to do that? The fruit of the spirit, that's God, the Holy Spirit is love. God enables you to do what pleases him. Now, this is the other side of it where... I will be called semi-Pelagian, but I'm not. You have to choose to do what God tells you to do. God is working in us both to want and to do what pleases him. You have to choose it. It is not going to be miraculously occurred to you so that you are then forced into doing it. Now You can be brought along. God's got a rod and staff and they, they comfort me. And he can correct me along the way. You're not loving like I want. You might come face to face with some shortcomings that God presents to you. But he's a loving father. He is not you. You have to choose. So Paul is commanding Timothy, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. What is the good deposit? It's the message of the gospel that's been commanded of him. Loneliness of ministry in verse 15. You know this, that they turned away from me all who are in Asia. First hour, we're studying the basics of the Christian faith. We just started a new series, the basics, basic Christian doctrine here at Preston City Bible Church. It's a great survey of what we believe from a, you know, we're trying to demonstrate from the Bible why we do what we do and, and what we think, what we, why we think what we think. We, we talked about this letter from the Lord Jesus to Ephesus in Revelation 2. This is what we're talking about, these people that Paul is sending Timothy to that Paul is ministering all the people in the arena where you are ministering. Timothy have turned from me. Now, Paul is in chains. He's in prison in Rome. He is scandalized. He is being treated like a criminal, like an insurrectionist. He's going to be executed, not on a Roman cross as Peter would, would be, but as a Roman citizen with the lictor's ax by beheading because Paul's a citizen. But as he's in prison awaiting this inevitable outcome, which we know from this book, 2 Timothy, he's going to die in this imprisonment, the last imprisonment. He said, They've all turned away from me. I've abandoned all the people that uh, have been ministry associates. In a time, and see, he's saying this as a, a rebuke to them. He, he's saying this, this is wrong that they've abandoned me. They've turned from me, and they're all busy doing something else. And he doesn't say why. They're not associating with him, but they, but he says they should be bringing encouragement or it's, it's a, it's obvious Timothy. So notice he's sending Timothy to do this ministry. He's saying that your cohorts, your other Christian brothers that are supposed to be, you know, the family support, the encouragement, it's not there. You and me, you and me kid is what he's saying. And we can name names. Phagellus and Hermogenes is Phugellus uh, in Greek, and Hermogenes is uh, is pretty close to how we would say that in Greek. Hermogenes, Hermogenes. Uh, by the way, I'll always translate uh, Greek, New Testament, and put it on the screen in English. I'll always tra- translate Hebrew, Old Testament, and put it on the screen in English, and you're getting my... Best effort at bringing Technicolor to what your English Bible does in its translation. Static translation is limited, and so I don't expect you to know Greek. I expect me to go review things as I'm as I'm speaking to you. These are kind of my notes that I'm showing you on the screen. You know this that they turned away from me. Who all who are in Asia of whom are jealous ph- and Hermogenes. Uh, I think these men are believers in Christ. I think they 're going to spend eternity with God. I think we 'll know them in uh, the next phase of this experience they 're in the presence of the Lord right now, but boy, do I not want to be these guys who abandoned Paul, who' most Im- been influential in our lives for giving us the systematic view of god 's self disclosure in the New Testament. They have abandoned him i don 't want to be these guys, but I do want to be this guy, Onecehorus, in verse sixteen. May the Lord give mercy to the house of Onesephorus. You Greek students, I must point out, one of the 17 rare optative cases in the New Testament, it's saying this is what I want to happen and I'm offering it as a wish, as though like a prayer on behalf of this man. May the Lord, that's just a little, that's just a little commercial for the Greek students. I don't expect you to be a Greek student. But may the Lord give mercy to the house of Onesephorus. Why? because many times he refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. Now this, in contrast to the people of Asia who have, who have abandoned Paul, makes me think, and I think it's not a hard inference to say, these people should have, but haven't refreshed him. He has given them everything and they have basically ignored him. Well, I guess Paul's done. They've, they've dismissed him. And, and they're ashamed of his chains. What do you do with this? Well, we, um, we want to be Onesephorus, on not Hermogenes and Phagellus. But when he was in Rome, when he came to see me, he sought me out diligently and found me. Hey, where's Paul? Well, he's in prison. He's either in the Mamertine prison or he's under house arrest. But he has is, he is, uh, been nabbed by the, the authorities. So he's in a place of dishonor. And he didn't make any resistance to finding me. He didn't care is the point and that's going to come up a lot don't um don't be ashamed of my chains may the lord grant to him to find mercy from the lord in that day and how much in Ephesus he served you know very well so the one guy who was influential in the church in Ephesus this guy Onesophorus I want to honor him personally now this is the interesting thing about the bible this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy about people that they know we don't know anything about these people we're just outsiders observing. That's how history works. But there is something in this for all of us. Be the hospitable advancer of the gospel ministry in the refreshment of those who do this work. If you can find an apostle, refresh them. If, if, if there are no apostles today, find this communicators, refresh them. Now, I'm telling, telling you. <laughs> but, but my point is we should all be building that bonfire that exalts and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ and advancing in any way we can. We're just all adding fuel to that, that revelation. We're all trying to make the case clear. And that's what, that's what Onesephorus did. Perhaps he was gifted with a, um, a gift of hospitality or a gift of helps, a gift of service, right? Maybe he's a pastor, who's coming to Paul to get training and in receiving the training you would get from Paul, he's reciprocating with, you know, my wife made this for you or, Hey, I brought you um, a new garment, a new robe. I brought you some, he'll, he'll tell Timothy, bring me some parchments. I brought you some of your books, right? Um, to bring comfort to those in prison in prison for the gospel. And he, he is in prison for the gospel. So in first Timothy chapter two, we come to the next round of commands. We heard, retain the standard that you've received from me, guard the deposit of this ministry of the gospel. And now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have the first command, you therefore my child, what, beloved, what's the nature of the relationship between Christians Paul is not the father of Timothy. Timothy has a dad. We don't know anything about his dad. We know his mother and his grandmother are believers. What is Paul's relationship to Timothy? What does he call him? He says, I'm your dad. He's not his physical father. He's not God the father. So how is he his father? Moms and dads, it is on us to disciple our children. If somebody disciples me that is not my dad, he is doing my dad's job. That's what we're talking about. It's a family affair. And there's a blending. You can see an overlapping between the physical family and the body of Christ. We will be surrogates. When dad drops the ball, when when your dad drops the ball, someone else comes in and ministers with you and disciples you. And that's what he's doing for Timothy. I am your father in the faith. I'm functioning as your dad and discipling you. You, therefore, my child command to be strong, be strong in the grace, which is in Christ Jesus. Does this mean be strong to disregard the grace in Christ Jesus? No. This means that that which you've received as a gift from God, you need to hold fast and you need to be equipped by the spirit of God to hold it forth. Be strong in the grace. And the things you heard from me, past completed action, you heard this from me. Through many witnesses, and I've added too much nerd Greek here, the attendant circumstance of the presence of many witnesses. You didn't hear it from their witness. They didn't tell you about me. You were with others when I said this. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These things, the command is paratithemi set before faithful men. Could be translated in trust but that involves the words for faith. That's not the word here. It's to set in front of. And so it's, it's very functional. The word you being used for the ministry of the gospel, you hand it off to the next guy, to the next men. Now we think of these as the pastoral epistles. Timothy is being equipped to go pastor in Ephesus. What are pastors doing? If Timothy is a pastor, What are pastors doing if Timothy is a pastor? They're setting these things before faithful men. They're setting these things before faithful men. And that's why we have, for example, Chafer Theological Seminary. Chafer Seminary has become the the seminary in your local church, the place of training pastors academically with accountability to the local church. It was my proposal to make it so because of passages like this. This verse, 2 Timothy two, 2 is our motto at Schaefer Seminary. If you get any document from our, our school, it'll say, commend these things to his faithful men who will teach others also. Hold your place for me just for a second, and can we look at um, at Ephesians chapter 4. When the apostle Paul mentions the communicators, he says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, the communicators as gifts in Ephesians four. He's talking about those gifted to communicate and they become themselves a gift by the gift of Christ. What does he say about them? That's Ephesians four eleven. The only place that the pastor teacher is directly mentioned as a spiritual gift. And that's a controversial statement, but I'll, I'll stand by it. What does he say? What's the purpose of these pastors and teachers? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Beloved, listen, please. Coming to church is not coming to me. Coming back down the hill. Coming to church is not coming to me. You're not coming to get the wafer from the clergy. That's not what we're doing. You are the church. Why do you come to me? I come to you. We come to one another because I'm equipped by God to equip you. Because that's what it look, Ephesians 4.12, I better put my finger back in the Bible. Again, this is why Chaffer Seminary is the seminary in your local church. Because pastors are for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of service, that's your service that you're supposed to render. It's equipping you to do the work on the building up of the body of Christ. To the building up, Who builds the body of Christ? Well, God does. But how does he do it? Through you. How does he use me? To equip you to do it. Listen to it. I grew up wanting to be an infantry officer in the army infantry is the GI Joe's. They're the guys with the rifles and, uh, and the, 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 the the low crawling and the waking up with your head in a mud puddle and such. And I decided I did a, a quick switch and I switched over to armor at the last minute because I saw a tank back up and I said, that's pretty cool. And they said, it's infantry at 30 miles an hour. And I said, that's even better. And then someone told me one tank has as much, uh, as much machine gun ammunition as an infantry company. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then I became uh, a maintenance person because we watched the tanks and we worked on the tanks and we, we, we fixed the tanks and the tanks broke. Anyway, long story. Why am I telling you about this? Because I always wanted to be the tip of the spear. I wanted to be the guy with the rifle or the tank or the helicopter, the guy out front doing the actual armying. I didn't want to be the guy in the back equipping people to do it, but just as soon as you become an officer, which you must lead from the front when you're in the command position, but most officers are in the back doing logistics, preparing, equipping, sending the food and the and the bullets and the fuel and everything downrange for the soldiers. Most of what officers do is logistical and equipping. And we learned a phrase early on, which is just, oh, you want to go play. You want to go run around on the tanks. You want to go shoot gunnery. You don't want to go requisition ammunition formed out tripl- filled out in triplicate. You don't want to have to talk to the maintenance supervisor again about why this seal hasn't been fixed the 15th time. You don't want to do that stuff. You want to get in your tank and, run, and drive away and, uh, and, and go shoot plywood. So fun. The whole tank, when you shoot the tank, your whole tank rocks back. There are road wheels on the sides that, that the tracks go over. You've seen the tank. The front two road wheels come off the ground on this 70 ton tank with service ammunition. Cuckoo, you're sitting on this gun that blows. It's amazing. It's amazing. Probably shell shock from it. The little bit of time I got to spend in the tank doing gunnery when I wasn't doing logistics. But here's the phrase I learned as a young officer. Amateurs can do tactics. Amateurs are GI Joe. They're the ones figuring out the battle plan. Professionals do logistics. The best battle plan in the world is useless if your entire army is choked in the Philippines and they have to, they have to, to, to surrender to the Japanese because they've lost all their material support and they're starving to death. They've eaten all the monkeys on the Philippine islands and there's nothing left to eat. And they have so much ammunition, they have to spend two weeks blowing it up in place to surrender to the Imperial Japanese army. That's what happened with Pearl Harbor. We lost the Philippines and the thousands of men on the Philippines, uh, army soldiers, army Marines. We lost all our forces on the Philippines because we lost our ability to resupply them. So all that bullets was useless because the men were starving to death. They were getting very, very. Have you ever heard of the Bataan death march? Where the, where the Japanese marched the men thousand miles or whatever to uh, barefooted, and, and if they fell down, they would bayonet them in the gut. This horrible thing that happened to our soldiers because of Pearl Harbor. And what's my point? That professionals do logistics. Everybody can do tactics. Now, let me back that off. The tactics are the building up of the body of Christ. The tactics are the ministry of the gospel that we're all responsible for. I am very, very literally, guys, that played football. I am the guy... Working for the coach, handing you, here's your gear. I'm that guy. You're the people out there playing the sport. I'm handing you your pads and your jersey and your helmet and, and your mouth guard, and you've got to go stick it in the boiling water and then put it in your mouth while it's still scalding to form that mouth guard. I'm the guy handing you that stuff. You're the people that are supposed to go out and actually play the game. That's what Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is saying, that I've been given a gift, but so have all of you. And that's what we're doing. The the communicators equip you for the ministry of service. You need to be telling me, those stories that run chills up my spine where God set you in front of someone just at a moment when they needed to hear of Christ, just in the moment where they needed to hear that Jesus died for their sins. When God prepared their hearts, I didn't, you didn't, but you got to say the words that planted that seed. And you need to, you need to be telling me these stories of how you've had these experiences and I'll pass them on because they're very encouraging. We need to be telling each other these stories where God uses us. I was talking to a believer uh, beloved uh, friend in Christ yesterday about an incredible experience and at another fair ministry because it's fair time everybody's out at the fair in the fall and how God used uh, this person to bring three people to Jesus Christ in a space of about two hours in ministry just because they were in the right place with the right training at the right time that God was working it, and they got to be partners with him in his work That's what the communicators are. That's what Paul is equipping Timothy to be. And so that's what he's saying. You need to be setting these things that I've given you in front of others that'll be able to teach others also. And that's what you'll do if you set the word in front of one one another. If we absorb it, if we become more characterized by Christ, if we become a product of the Holy Spirit using the word of God in us, what will happen is we will be fit to teach others also. And that's the way we are standing here. This happened. Paul, 2,000 years ago, said this. And then some people, a very small minority of people, took it seriously. And yeah, the Roman Empire flipped Christians supposedly under Constantine. You got this this visible church idea from within the Roman Empire, which is supposedly all Christian. It was not. It was largely pagan. It was a, a, a wicked syncretism but there's always been a remnant. There's always been a few that get with God's word, not with the politics. Oh, we're Christian. Now. Okay. That's, that's where the, the, the political winds are blowing. No, 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 no. It's inside out. I'm coming to Christ as my savior. He puts his spirit in me and then I am used by him according to his word. So pass it on, Timothy. You therefore suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I'm not out of context to give you military illustrations. (laughs) You therefore suffer hardship. We've talked about this word before, kakopatheo. The word patheo is a verb. It's kind of common in the New Testament. Kakopatheo is only in the epistles, uh, the, the pastoral epistles, and then in James one time. But what does this mean? It means to suffer wickedness or hardship. This kakos is bad, wicked, and then to suffer. The basic word for suffering, pathos is your word in Greek for suffering. It's come into English as pathetic, (laughs) pathological, pathology. These are words that are coming from this Greek word for suffer. It can also mean to experience a great emotional, positive feelings but it's experience. It's, it's, it's emotional experience. And in this case, it's negative to suffer hardship. And so Paul is not telling him that he will hear. That would be the, what we call the indicative mood. He's telling him he must, that's the imperative mood, do it. And this is the answer to the question, but Paul, if I go back to that church, they're going to laugh at me. And it's going to hurt. Or if I go back to that church, they're going to keep attacking me, and that's going to hurt. If I go back and do what you're telling and I rekindle the gift, then I'm going to suffer. Well, we know that. In fact, Paul tells him not just that you will suffer, we already know this. He says you must suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about three illustrations Paul gives of suffering hardship. First, he, he refines the soldier idea no one soldiering. This is the participle describing no one no one who is soldiering entangles himself gets entangled in the things of life pragmateia pragmatic meaning the daily mundane civilian affairs of life if you're a soldier you're not worried about the the things everyone else is worried about you don't need to read the headlines in the roman empire you need to show up for the centurion because he's calling uh, his troops to assemble. You need to be embroiled in the things of the centurion, the, the boss, because you're working for him. And the reason, listen to it, no one soldier gets entangled in the affairs of civilian life so that the one who enlisted him, he may please. Listen to the cause and the effect. There's an avoidance of entanglement because there's the desired effect of pleasing the boss. You see it? I am avoiding entanglement on the one hand because I'm desiring to please the boss on the other hand. Cause and effect. You see it? That's the principle that he's saying in verse seven. Think about these things and God will give you understanding. Remember the command to suffer hardship as a good soldier. And now we're trying to please the one who has enlisted us. It's a personal relational cause and effect. So you don't worry about something that isn't on the mission, focus on the mission because you're trying to please the boss. Verse four and verse five switches. My my illustrations sometimes go long. Paul's are pretty short. Verse five, switch over athletes. You guys like the athletics. We like the sports. Well, Paul lived in a time when they were really playing the Olympic games, like in Mount Olympus in Greece and the Ismian games and uh, all the different Greek isles had these famous athletic events. And he says... Now, if anyone competes as an athlete, look at this cool word. If anyone, uh, athle, A-T-H-L-E, where we get the word athlete. It's the word for competition in Greek. And it means to compete in the games. If anyone competes in these, he is not stefanao. He is not crowned. That means victorious. This is the crown that they would give the, the winner of the games. He doesn't get a gold medal in our time. He didn't get that reef. That would be the crown or the Stephanos of the victor unless he goes by the rules, unless he competes lawfully. Now this is a little bit different from the soldier needs to disregard the entanglements that aren't the mission because he wants to please the boss. Now he's saying there's a prize to attain and you've got to work the protocol. You have to play the game according to the rules. I I recently saw a, um, a video it's a fantastic uh, documentary about a famous Czechoslovakian in the time later Czech Republic but a Czech man named uh, Jan and I'm going to screw his name up um it start it, you say ch but it's it starts with a z um sorry about the 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 accident here it's the greatest javelin thrower in known history um if you know his name, you can shout it out, then we're, then <laughs> that would help me. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll think of it in a second. But uh, he he was almost superhuman in his ability to throw the javelin through the 80, late 80s to the early 2000s. And um, they changed the sport because uh, he threw a javelin at one point that almost hit people outside the the the, the range. He went past the range almost, and uh, they said, "Well, we've got to change the sport." So they changed the 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 the, comp- the composition of the javelin so that it made them less able, made the javelins go shorter distances. So the world records all had to change because they changed the sport, international javelin throwing. And he still uh, is like the greatest javelin thrower of all time. But one of his greatest throws. For uh, the, like the heyday of his career, um, which would have knocked him out of the games, complete, out of the sport completely, there's a, there's a place when you throw the javelin, y'all can see this in the Olympics sometime, there's a line that you have to stop running and, and let it go. And your body can't go past the line. So you run, I'm not going to run. You run the javelin and then you get to the line or before the line and you throw it and all the momentum of your body's still going. And you can't with your momentum go past the line. It 's not like you know you can outrun third ba- or first base and keep running because of the momentum it 's not like that. you have to stop your whole body. Well, he was called by a judge, just like out of peripheral vision, that he went past the line on a world record or a world championship throw, and he didn't and it 's kind of hard to see in the 80s cameras if if he did or didn't, but it looks like he really didn't. And he's like, No way, but they disqualified him, and he didn't even he didn't qualify for um the championship where he would have been the world record holder at that time. What what am I saying? Well, in that case, he was told he didn't compete according to the rules. So it didn't matter that it was the best throw that he'd ever made or that anyone had ever seen, because he was disqualified by this boundary. And now while we call this judge probably errant, right? There is a rule for a reason. There is a boundary line because we want to have a set standard so that when he does make this world record throw, there's no question, no, no asterisk, right? He really did make this throw. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about playing according to the rules. If you want to compete and win the crown, then you've got to do it God's way. And this is a message about protocol. Finally, George, the farmer, why do I say George the farmer? Because this is fun. Look at this. G E O R G. The name George comes from the Greek and it means farmer. I thought it was cool. All right, so you're gone is the word here, George. The hard working farmer, for him, it is necessary first to receive the fruit of his labor. He gets the first share when he's the hard working farmer. What's the cause? The cause in this case is that you're a hard worker. What is the effect? You get the first share. You get to the, and so what's the message? To the victor go the spoils. To the worker go the fruits of the labor. And so he's telling him, suffer hardship with me. You've got work to do. There is a desired crown of Stephanos. There's victory, but you have to play according to the rules, which means step up to this plate. It's going to hurt. There is the fruit, the outcome of your labor. You get it back, 1 Corinthians 3. If you build with the right materials, then when the judgment comes, you get back what you built with after the test of fire. As for the hardworking farmer, it's necessary that he receive the first share of the fruit. Consider what I'm saying, he says. That's this word, noeo, to know, to consider, to think about it, ponder it. Think about these cause and effect relationships. I'm saying verse seven points back. Think about the fact, because see, he's trying to get him to step back up to ministry and he knows it's going to hurt. So Paul doesn't even talk about whether or not it's going to, oh, it may go better for you. No, it's going to be bad. This is going to hurt. Step up. That's what he's saying. Think about what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You go back to the word that I've given you as the apostle of Jesus Christ, and as you absorb and assimilate these things, this is a promise. By the way, y'all, I'm putting commands in red. When he gives a command, I'm putting it in red. So it's just really clear. This is, this is a, a book full of commands. Paul's in a right position to give these commands and Timothy is blessed by the grace of God to receive them. So he says, consider what I'm saying for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, if you take the long view about your suffering, it's worth it, so let's get after it. That's the eternal perspective of God's word on the ministry of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, from the seed of David, according to my gospel. Now I'm telling you that when Paul goes back to remember Christ as his command, after he tells him to suffer hardship and think through the, the cause and effect and the benefits of, of suffering hardship, when he goes back to Jesus This is the ultimate focus. The home base for us and our attention always goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Now we we had him looking at himself and the benefits of hard work and suffering. There are benefits that are outcomes for you doing this, right? In the last two or three verses, we had look at you and what you get, but that's always a secondary matter to thinking on Christ keep your attention there. You look at yourself while you're thinking of him. That's the way to look at you. Cause here's what we'll do. I'll get focused on myself and uh, I don't like what I'm, I don't like it. This hurts. What will there be for me? What about me? Where's mine? And if you look at Jesus, you're like, Oh, there it is. I have everything in him. My value is him for me to live as Christ. That's what he does here by switching back to Jesus Christ, the home base for Christian focus. The gospel of Jesus Christ in which I suffer hardship to the point of chains like a criminal. So again, he says, remember Christ raised from the dead, the seed of David, according to my message, my gospel, good news that I'm sharing in which gospel message I suffer hardship, He does this other thing he often does. He sets himself up as Timothy's example. He says, you need to suffer hardship. And now he's saying, I'm suffering hardship. And the people that have abandoned me are not getting it right. The people that are suffering together with me, we're getting it right. That's what he's saying. So yeah, Timothy, you should expect even the Christians that are flaking, flakers are going to flake, okay? It's going to happen. I suffer hardship to the point of chains like a criminal. This word chains could be bonds. It could be imprisonment. But I'm trying to translate consistently because I have another word that means imprisonment or chains. I suffer hardship to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. We're going to close here. As Paul is taking Timothy through the valley of the shadow of death, you are going to suffer for this. Paul in this letter is going to say, I'm going to die for this. I'm going to be executed by the Romans. It's imminent. I'm being poured out. He says it this way. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My life is about to be sacrificed for the gospel. But here... He's telling Timothy, this is our responsibility. Now, what do you do with this? It's a heavy message. To the victor go the spoils, to the hard worker go the rewards. Is that a message of how to come to know Christ as your Savior? It is not. Who is my audience? Paul is talking to a believer who's been a believer since he's a little kid, and now he's a pastor that has been knocked down got a bloody nose and he's suffering. So how did Timothy get here? Well, the first thing that happened was his grandmother and his mother heard the apostle Paul tell them that Jesus died for their sins on the cross and rose from the dead. Has Paul told you that? Maybe it was your grandparents or your mother or your father. That's how I came along. Some of you have told me that's how you came along. But nevertheless, however God used the humans to communicate this message, I understood clearly and so did you that Jesus died for my sins. He died to pay my penalty that I could never pay so that I could have his life. And he gives me eternal life the minute, the very second I trust in him as my savior. That's how Timothy got into the harness. Timothy grew in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. He grew from that initial new birth as a newborn Christian baby, he grew spiritually to the point that God could use him in ministry in Ephesus. And apparently he was getting it right because in Ephesus, they beat him down. (laughs) Paul says, this is what to expect in Asia Minor. But my question is, how did he get there? He started with life and then he started to live it. Wherever you are in the continuum, don't get this confused. This message of suffering for Jesus Christ is not to the unbeliever. It's not to someone that doesn't know Christ. This is someone who has eternal life has a lot to enjoy in Christ and therefore a lot to expect in serving him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing my voice on the internet, here in person, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as savior. What Jesus did for you on the cross is the gospel. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the historic fact that Archaeologists and historians can do their best to deny, but which stands the test of time and scrutiny. And why did God raise him from the dead? Because he had paid for our sins, he had satisfied God's wrath concerning our sin. When asked what must I do to be saved? Very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. Father, we thank you for the eternal life that's ours through Jesus Christ and the commands of Scripture that direct our steps. Father, we know we can do nothing except for your grace working in us, that it's the Spirit's empowerment in all these things, and we ask for this work in us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Before we close our final uh, word of benediction, I want to ask uh, Eli Krebs, come on up. I told Eli I would never embarrass him publicly. So never make you come up here and stand in front of everybody, everybody look at you. It's a really nice shirt you have on. This is a fantastic young man, as you all know. And he has become a member of Preston City Bible Church. He has agreed, uh, he's a believer in Christ. He's agreed with our doctrinal statement, and, and that's not a matter of conscience for him. And uh, we are so thrilled uh, for him to join us. And I wanted to give everybody the chance to extend to him the right hand of, of, uh, of fellowship And I meant to do this the other day and we didn't quite get there. So um, I'm gonna pray for you. And then Rusty wants you to come up. Come on up. Rusty's gonna close us in prayer and then want everybody to please take a moment to come by. We'll come up front. We'll bring Eli up front and we'll all welcome him as a member of Preston City Bible Church. Father, we uh, thank you for the gospel ministry. We thank you for Eli's willingness to serve you according to all that you've said. Thank you that he's decided that you've drawn him to do that with us here. We're so blessed to have him. We're so blessed to see your work in him. Father, we pray for you to sanctify him every day through your word, to uh, strengthen him as you test him, help him continue to remember that every test is a test of faith. Help him be strengthened by what you've said and in the experience he has as you bring him through. And I I pray, Father, for many uh, wonderful years of fruitful ministry here at Preston City Bible Church. Let him be a blessing to the saints here and especially to those outside help them help him represent Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs him we ask in Jesus name amen